16. And again, he entered Capernaum and some day, after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then he came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not hear, when they could not, excuse me, and when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was laying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned such within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiving you? Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all. So all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Glory to God. Be seated. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive on earth to forgive sins. This is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. These two phrases are sort of answers to questions in Mark's gospel for us today. One of the challenges, we, we have gospels of Mark that many of you have taken in the back, is that as, as modern uh, preacher, modern Christians, too, we face the temptation to, to only think of these as stories about Jesus that happened long ago, that they're some past tales. But with these two stories today, I think that these are ones that can speak to us in our current moment, in our current struggles, and our current afflictions, not just in a way that says application, 
um, but that we can find ourselves within the story. It's a pleasure that the, the kids get to go to kids' church and hear these stories. Uh, it's a story of one of my favorite theologians. He says that after Palm Sunday when he was young, he came home and awaited for that parade to come down his street. That he had this way of sort of reading the scriptures and seeing the scriptures that that is, is, is he expected them to be world, real in his world and in his life. And I think the challenge for us is to regain that sense, is that these are real in our world and real in our lives. So as we look at the Gospel of Mark today, um, part of the challenge, I think, for me is to find the ways um, through the Spirit that these, there's a, there's a phrase that, that they use sometimes, that the Word leaps the gaps, that the word is able to leap the gap to the present and to speak to us in our moment, in our afflictions, in our wholeness, in what God would have for us. And so for us, it's, it's today to hear how the word might leap the gaps to us. This is um, our third sermon in the book of Mark, only in chapter 2, but we're, we're moving. Um, this section in chapter 2 moves from 2-1, uh, which Jared read for us today, thank you, pretty much all the way to 3-6. Now, one of my uh, plans for the Gospel of Mark was to sort of tackle it into sort of these big categories, disciples, demons, his physical healings, his parables, and his natural miracles. Um, today we have a, a discipleship call and a physical healing. But this is, when you read the Gospel too fast as as pastors are likely to do, I guess, you think, oh, these are, these are the scenes that make this up. But this, this section from 2.1 to, I think, 3.6 is mainly um, a question that's followed by the section of why. Each time Jesus does something in these, these are sort of like object lessons. The people, the scribes or the Pharisees most often say, why? The two things I read at the start of the sermon are Jesus' response to the why in these first two stories. That the son, of, that it's so the son of man, that we know that he is the um, can pronounce forgiveness of sins on earth, and that he came not to call the righteous, but to sinners. Uh, the other wise is that the son of Lord is the man of the Sabbath, um, and these things these these people ask is why does he eat with these people? Why does he do this on the Sabbath? Why doesn't he fast like John's disciples? And so these stories from two one to three six sort of make up object lessons for the reader to begin to hear what it means that Jesus is this one who's come and announced this sort of new reign on earth. This new sort of eschatology, this new um, reign of God is happening in the presence of this person. What does that mean? Well, why does this reign of God include tax collectors and sinners? Christ has an answer. Why does this reign of God produce, uh, have the announcement of the forgiveness of sins? Christ has his answer. What we read from the book of Isaiah uh, today that Brian read for us also says that these are, are, are things that are within Israel's prophetic history. That the one who announces this reign on earth will be one of this kind, will be one who does these acts, will be one who lives in such a way. So we'll only do the first two of these. Um, but if you're, if you're reading along in the gospel, if you're reading it, it's worth noticing that in this section till about, like I said, 3-6, there's always a why question asked from the opposition. The, the second thing to note as this section is, is that it's mainly about opposition. In 1, chapter 1, again, we haven't made it very far. Um, <laughs> uh, we'll be done by Easter, though. Uh, the, um, the, uh, 
the, it seems things are going okay. Jesus has announced this reign, and the opposition hasn't quite formed. He meets one demon, but he casts it out, and the people are amazed. There isn't this whole other thing. What happens in this section is it begins to say that this one, as this one who announces this reign on earth, in which God will make things right and restore and forgive sins and, and reorient the Sabbath and all these things, is that opposition will come to it. Also a truth within the Hebrew prophetic tradition that we can read in the Old Testament, that the people will push back against this one as he comes. And so this is what we find is that these questions are ones of opposition, ones of pushback on on sort of who Jesus is going to be for this moment for these people. So as it brings clarity to us to hear why this reign has this shape, it's also worth noting that these are the seeds by which he ends up crucified. Most notably, this one in this first one, the healing of the paralytic man, in which he pronounces the forgiveness of sins, is the one at one of the charges in which he brought against him in his trial, which is that of blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Who is this one who forgives sins? The charge of blasphemy comes strong, and so we see in this moment what the human opposition is to Jesus. And... and, uh, Hopefully this will become clear as we go through the stories, but we can see what our opposition is to Jesus. People who come through ceilings as we gather around and hear the words of forgiveness and healing. People who are tax collectors and sinners, and we'll get into what that might mean for us today, gathered around this one at a feast or banquet in which it doesn't seem fair or right. And your reader of Mark's gospel, particularly that second story, would be like, I'm glad he explained that, because if you had told me the guy that we worship was one who hung out with tax collectors and sinners, I'd have more questions. Um, But that teaching, that it is the sick who need a doctor, not a healthy and, well, as we, we'll get to it. Um, uh, we'll start in the stories. This, the first story is, is the healing of, of the paralyzed man, which is really a story about forgiveness and healing um, together. What's interesting about this is that as Jesus comes into the town, such a large number of this that there was no room left in the house. So some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, Jesus, uh, to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging in it and lowered the mat the man was lying on. This, um, in the ancient Near East, roofs were made to be removed. Um, so don't think of your house, perhaps. Uh, when it was really hot and the breezes would come through at a certain season, you would remove the roof so that you could... You could. So they, they, they pull off some... some um, material on the roof. But what's interesting about Jesus and a lot of his healing narratives is a lot of the people have two problems, or in this case, maybe three, but certainly I can't get to Jesus is Zacchaeus's problem. The woman who touches him as he moves throughout the crowd, he won't, he, I need to touch him and he won't notice me. Um, this man has two problems. One, he can't walk. Two, there's no way for him to get to Jesus. It's this way in which Jesus comes for um, the last, the lost, and the least, um, shows up even in that, in that they have often two obstacles that they need to get to Jesus for. 
And the paralytic man has friends who help him come through the roof into the center of this place to come to where Jesus is. It says that when Jesus saw their faith, which is one of the phrases I thought worth stopping on, is that, is that when Jesus saw their faith, now this could include the paralyzed man, but it definitely includes the four friends. Jesus sees the faith of those who open the roof, and this is what causes him to turn towards healing. Jesus sees their faith. For the church today, for us included, it's this call to, to two things, I think. One is to that, that, that space of intercessory prayer that we function in for one another. We pray for one another. The second is we carry each other's burdens. This is uh, literally encapsulated in the story because they are carrying the man himself. But for us, we too are called to be those who carry each other's burdens. And so then it is for Christ to see our faith. Parents, I think, intuitively know this because if, if they aren't apt to pray early in their lives, they are apt to pray for their children. They intercede hoping, not, uh, well, they often intercede hoping faith will, will take root in their children's lives. But the challenge of this passage might be how we intercede hoping that God might see our faith and pronounce forgiveness. We talked last week a little bit about um, the buffered selves we live in the modern world. So uh, if I don't believe something, I can walk by um, uh, a satanic temple because what could it do to me if I don't believe it? Whereas in the ancient world, you know, if you walked by the temple of another god, even if you didn't believe it, you felt that there were spirits and powers residing within it, and so you had concern about it. That's sort of how we applied it last week. This week, I think the buffered self, the, the, the notion, so the alternative, and this comes from Charles Taylor, the alternative is a poor self in which these things, we see ourselves as able to receive cross pressures and this, that, and the other. Charles Taylor makes the point of, it's not that either of these is good and one of these is bad, but just the notion that we've changed our understanding of, of what a person is, that we think we're immune to things that we don't really believe in or this, that, and the other. With, with this passage, this carrying of each other's burdens, I think that, and in, in the New Testament does this several times, is it suggests that the, the community of believers is bound in a porous way. The unbelieving spouse might be saved by the believing spouse faith. We're connected in other ways. Paul, if one of you sleeps with a prostitute, all of you sleep with the prostitute. That the community of believers is bound in faith in a way that's more porous than we often think. It's just me and my family is the way that the modern world has sort of uh, divided ourselves. But within the church, there's this idea in which we carry each other's burdens, we carry each other, and that we are bound together in this way. And so that our faith might be the faith by which somebody else receives healing. Jesus sees the faith of these friends. What's interesting that Jesus, seeing their faith, doesn't announce healing at first, but that, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, in the ancient world, and, and particularly because of the uh, Old Testament, um, sickness and sin were seen as connected. Now, this, in the modern world, has bad temptations to assume 
that if somebody's sick, we need to pinpoint the sin in their lives. People do get sick without the evidence of sin, um, but, but we've mainly thrown off because of the bad temptation there to, to blame all sickness on people's individual sins. We've thrown off the idea that the state of our souls might actually have um, a play out in our bodies, which I think is an error. But one of the commentators I was reading this week said, it's not actually, the point isn't about finding the sin. No sin is named for this man as he receives the forgiveness of sins. But that each sin that we commit is a little bit more darkness invading the world in which Christ has made. And because that, that is a little bit more darkness, uh, a little bit more of, of, of the opposition winning, so too it also is that which creates sickness in the world. That Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the means by which darkness sort of comes and sickness and death is what, in, what comes into our lives. These things exist more in relationship than I think we allow. Not for you to say, well, I'm, I have some sort of uh, illness. It's for me to, well, you might want to think about that. Uh, what sort of sin and lifestyle am I living? But more you might also... Um, uh, see in which the ways in which we live in this relationship and we think these things are divided, the spiritual and the physical, and perhaps they're more one uh, realm than we think. Um, again, it's not right for us to think, and Jesus corrects this teaching, I think, in John, um, the man is born blind so that works of God might be revealed within him. Um, it's not the instance of figuring out where the sin resides as such, but is admitting that sin is an instance by which also causes our suffering and illness. That we live in a world bound um, uh, to frustration, which I think is the core curse. It's a frustration that shows both in our addictions and our sins and our neglectfulness, and a frustration that shows too in our bodies as we feel um, the effects of illness and sin within us. But he announces his sins are forgiven first. This is Irenaeus. Uh, how can sins be rightly remitted unless the very one against whom the one has sinned grants the pardon? Um, how can he forgive sins if the sin is not against him? This is Jesus. Irenaeus is saying that this is an early portion of Jesus portraying his divinity before them. But the next question he asks them is, which is easier? As, as he senses in their hearts and spirits, which is one of those interesting things, is Jesus, uh, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking, which is that, um, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blasphemizing. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking in their hearts. The Bible has this relationship into which our hearts are one, it's more likely to think of hearts, as we talked about in Proverbs, as our minds. It's the center of the person. Um, in the modern world, we think our heads are. In the ancient Near East, your heart was more the center of who you were. Um, and so he, he sees in their hearts, but the, the heart is also not always portrayed positively in the scriptures. It's deceitful and it moves fast. Whereas Jesus, two times, I think, in Mark, sees things by his spirit, which is to say the spirit might be a steadier place to reside than the heart, which is governed by emotions and rivalries and this, that, and the other. Um, uh, he sees in his spirit. Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the par this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to take your mat and walk? Which is a good question. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, but which take up your mat and walk? Because in the one sense, 
It's obviously easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? Because there is no scientific test we can perform to see that this person's sins have been forgiven. Whereas if you say to somebody bound by a mat, take up your mat and walk, if they don't do it, you didn't succeed. But for the ancient Near East, the Jews, this question about blasphemy is it's actually harder because only the one sinned against, God in this instance, can forgive sins. It would be harder to do that because that is not our realm. That is not who we are. Jesus has this way in which, I mean, if, if you're hopefully one of these people asks these questions, it's like, I, I'll get back to you. Um, which is harder to do? Tell this man, pick up your mat and walk, or um, to forgive his sins? Because theologically, the answer is forgive his sins. Practically, the answer is take up your mat and walk. So Jesus says, but I want you to know that the son has, uh, man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is the answer to that question. Why does your teacher do this? Why is he blaspheming? Because he wants us to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. What he's saying is, is that I am the one whom, whom is able to announce the forgiveness of these in the world. That this kingdom, as he's announced it and is taking shape, is one in which the one who is the, the home of the kingdom in the world is able to proclaim the forgiveness of sins in the world. That on earth, he is the one who can proclaim forgiveness of sins. And this realm of forgiveness, I think, is particularly hard for us in the modern world. Forgiveness is withheld a lot. I was listening to a podcast this week, uh, Barry Weiss, who used to write for the New York Times, Ryan Holiday, who writes a, a daily Stoic stuff. Neither one of them are Christians, but they were talking about this demand for confession when people create error in the modern world is often just a demand for them to burn and to be canceled and to be cast out. The call, as I don't remember, they weren't really talking about one person, but you can see it sort of everywhere, is this call to say, so-and-so has committed some sort of um, infraction, minor or large, a group of people will come together demanding that they apologize with no, um, no uh, acceptance that they'll actually accept whatever apology is given. It's a, a different New York Times writer, Christian, this one, she said, you know, it's hard to live in a world that consistently demands atonement but never offices, offers forgiveness. This resides, I think, as a, as a sin and as a darkness in our modern world in which we continually sort of want people to repent, want people to own their confessions, want people to do the work, and when they do it, we just want them gone and never accept them. Jesus is proclaiming the forgiveness of sins. This is not something that's even popular today. What did this man do but get thrown through a ceiling in front of him to have his sins forgiven? We want more than our pound of flesh often. And it's this world that tears people apart to do so. But it is the Son of Man who has the authority on earth to forgive sins, which will go into the next scene with the tax collectors and sinners, because those people, we would think, why does he hang out with them? 
But this realm is the extension of forgiveness of sins into this world. And so he tells you, I say, take up your mat and walk and go home. This person receives that their, mat, their um, sins are forgiven, but they also receive the physical healing. And this is Christ who cares for both our physical healing and our, our situation. I'm trying to think, this is where the quote on the back of the bulletin uh, comes for today. The physician's art, according to Decamitis, heals the diseases of the body. Wisdom frees the soul from its obsessions. But the good instructor, capital W Wisdom, who is the word of the Father who assumed human flesh, cares for the whole nature of his creature. The all-sufficient physician of our humanity, the Savior, heals both the body and the soul conjointly. Stand up, he commanded the paralytic, take your bed on which you lie and go home. And immediately the paralytic receives strength. This is one of the ways in which I think this passage speaks to us again today is that is that Christ for the early church was known as the doctor of our souls. Christ is the one who was the wise doctor. This comes into the next passage, who heals us in our afflictions that aren't just our bodily ones, but are those which are formed upon us. It's a last on this story is this last quote, take up your bed, carry the mat which you once carried. Changes places so that what was the proof of your sickness may now give testimony to the soundness, to your soundness. Your bed of pain becomes the sign of healing. It's very weight, the measure of the strength that has restored you. Take your bed, carry the mat which once carried you. Christ, as he heals people, sends them forth with the testimony of what has been healed in them. You don't take up your mat, you don't get your legs back and then leave what has been done for you, but you take forth that as what Christ has done in you. You take it forth as a testimony of your healing. So much so that these people, as, as in different stories from the Bible, there's this idea in which they laid in public places with their mat. To see the one who laid in the place with their mat now carrying their mat would be the announcement of a world flipped. To see the one who had surrendered to addiction, to surrender to anger, to surrender to this, carrying forth what had been their prison would be a testimony in the modern world to which they have been changed. Christ is one who commands this one to take up their mat and to leave. This amazed everyone and praising God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Christ has healed this one. The next story is the calling of Levi, which we'll talk about um, briefly. Is this one in which Christ is um, uh, calling a tax collector to serve with him. This one starts with, once again, he went by the lakeside. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. Uh, by the lakeside seems to be Jesus' classroom in Mark's gospel. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. One of the things I love about this passage, which I miss every time I read it too fast, is that Jesus sees Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. What happens later is people say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus sees people in their personhood. Jesus sees people by their names. Jesus doesn't see 
hey, terrible tax collector, get up and follow me. He sees Levi, son of Alphaeus. And one of the things you'll notice, he sees crowds in the Gospels, but one of the things you'll notice in this parable is everybody else is instrumentalized in this story, is that they are tax collectors and sinners. They are people who are um, cast out. They are people whom we don't share presence with. They are people whom we don't share table fellowship with. Jesus sees somebody who he can call to follow him. Now, if you're anything like most people in the modern world, I see people in groups generally if I don't like them. <laughs> if I like you, eh, great, you're a person. Um, but if you belong to one of the untouchables, as I've defined them cleverly as I may, and you will define them cleverly as you might, you don't see them as people. Those people, and you can, I, I mean, here's the temptation here is for me to fill in things, but it really doesn't do anything. It's, it's really for you to take this into yourself and to think, who do I see? And then just assume, why those people? Because of the internet, a lot of them we just think of are out there. But we still have no problem just throwing them into a basket of people not worth hanging out with. That one sounded way too close to political phrase for me. Um, Jesus sees him in his personhood and he calls him. When Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. This is Jesus um, reclining at Levi's house, uh, having a meal. This is this notion that, that this one who announces this on earth brings about the, the banquet of the end times in which people stream to it to receive their healing. That Jesus in this is, is, the way that it says he's reclining suggests this isn't a meal that's an interview. I don't know if pastors have this happen. I'm sure it's happened to you. Somebody invites you over for dinner and you and your spouse or you and a friend, you go and you're happy to go out to dinner and you sit down and you feel the energy is like, oh, they're either going to tell us something very serious, they're going to question us about something, or, or there's some other agenda here that that is perhaps going on. This is, I think, some of the ways that we would prefer Jesus hang out with our version of tax collectors and sinners is, is that when he gets to them, he gives them a stern talking to. Um, but what actually happens is it says that Jesus is reclining. The notion of this meal in the ancient Near East would be one more of a feast than it would be one of, say, um, a stern talking to, one in which, in which the people are sort of recorrected in their ways. That's not to say that doesn't happen, but this is the way in which this party is a sign for the people, that he is one who brings about this banquet, that he is one who brings about this time and place. One of the things uh, for Defiance Church, I, I, we went through this one, three, five thing where I define sort of the, the, the cores of our common life, word, confession, tradition, tradition is a well, order, and table, um, and, and how that these might work in our life together. It's hard for me to talk about them every Sunday because they make up exactly what we do. Um, we practice coming to the word and table. We aim to have our service represent the order of God's creation that God has for us. We confess both in song and in confession that our heirs in the world, and it's a tradition that we practice here that has been received both in our worship, but even the words for communion, from what I've received, I passed on to you, is what Paul says, which is exactly what a tradition is. From what I've received, I passed on to you. Um, but this one, uh, 
that, that Jesus is practicing here is this notion of table. And we talked about table, both each one of these things is not locked into the space, but that table in the closed circle is the table of communion of the believers. This is uh, most clearly seen in his um, Last Supper, um, but also in what Paul defines sort of as the fellowship remembrance of that Last Supper in which the community of believers comes together. Then we had um, what we described as sort of a more porous table, one in which we entertain people in the world in this kingdom way. And so we, in our houses, aim to have them, and in our lives, aim to have tables be places in which we too are gathered around Jesus in this sense, in the sense of which is happening in Mark 2 or in Matthew's house in the Gospel of Matthew, um, that, that Jesus is one who gathers people around him, not just only those who believe at instances, but fellowships and feasts with others as well. The last one, uh, the open circle, is sort of the way in which we go into the world um, the one way I think about this one is it's your lunch break table. Um, you're not the host here. Um, you're not a guest per se, but you're just one in the world. And so even at that table, we look for how God might be active in our lives. But this table here, this table of fellowship, is one in which Jesus is, is opening the door for more people to be in there. He's gathering with tax collectors and sinners. This time, they ask of him, um, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This is the question that makes this up. The, uh, I love this. Somebody pointed this out, um, that uh, tax collectors is one that, tax collectors in the ancient Near East, if you're not familiar, were people who got the right to collect taxes on things. So Chicago, we have tollways. Um, it would be like, actually, funny enough, one of the corrupt, most corrupt instances of politics in Chicago is the toll authority. So not far from home. Um, but in Chicago, we had tollways, and you bid on the right to collect the toll. Um, I don't know if this is how it happened in Chicago. So in the ancient Near East, you bid on the right to collect the toll or the tax. Then your job was to make up more than that to get your money. So the government that you do this is, it's a dollar to cross this bridge. Okay, I'll get a dollar for everybody who crosses this bridge. It's your job, you get more money by telling people, you owe me $2. You can imagine these people are not popular in the world. And not only that, Levi, which would imply that he descends from the Levites, is a traitor. He works for the Romans. And even more amazing that Jesus comes and meets with him is that the one that he works for considers himself the king of the Jews. And yet this is one who Jesus calls out to gather with him. The sinner's one is harder. There's, if you want to spend way too much time reading as I did this week, the sinners can be defined from anything from um, Gentiles and people who would pollute. Eating at this time was a polluting act if the people weren't uh, pure with you. And so they would be ones who would pollute your space. Um, that's what the Pharisees are concerned about. They would be people, so just unclean, but there's evidence that that doesn't mean unclean. And then there's evidence that means murders and adulterers and sexual um, uh, people practicing sexual immorality. The, the early church, or the there's no good answer to that question, although I think it's helpful that we take it as both to some degree. God is gathering around them those who this. And it's, it's interesting talking about the water and baptism. Jesus seems to think that it's holiness that's contagious, 
That's what makes him different than the Pharisees, than sin that's contagious. So he goes as one whom they catch holiness from, repair of themselves from, rather than as one whom is disformed by their company. Another challenge for us in the modern world, this is, this is one that many a commentator will point out, pastors aren't allowed to do this. <laughs> Why does your pastor eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does your ta- pastor eat with those people? And yet it is Jesus in his holiness, which again, I don't think all of us have. There are places it, when it, which it may not be wise for you to reside because of temptation. But Jesus in his holiness is able to go as one who, who sort of reverses the infection. He doesn't catch sickness. He gives them healing. Which brings us to the to the sort of the final passage, which is the answer in this one. It is not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. I have come to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. Christ comes as one who is there to call those who need him as a doctor. He's not there to call those whom think they have it together, that they are above or this, that, and the other, but ones who can receive his banquet table, this will come up in the story of the prodigal son, can receive his banquet table as a joyous reckoning of all people, not just my people, not just the people I'd like to be there. Jesus' table is one whom they consider themselves sick. Now, I was talking about this with a friend this past week, or two weeks ago, there, he said it's amazing that when you help people in a certain realm, there is no notion in which we are sick. And I told him, I said, that's true. You know, there are people that when you offer help or assistance in this, that, and the other, it often leads to more problems in this, that, and the other. But I said in, in true relationship, which um, at times we have, there was a uh, place that I worked in Seattle among uh, the homeless and people. It was a house that they could just come by and cook and clean and do laundry and, and eat at. There was a notion in which they, they could appreciate that you came from a different spot. There wasn't just anger at the in, in, uh, inequity, which often happens in our cases of charity, but to say that we're glad you're here. There are moments in my life where people come and help and be near me, and there's the first thing to feel it as judgment and the second thing to feel it as gift. I don't think the tax collectors and sinners would have been offended if they heard Jesus say, I came, uh, I came for the sick, not for the healthy. I think they had uh, receptivity in their lives to know who are we lying to. Who would know, when people walk by our meal, they already announce, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? We're here for the one whom is our doctor, who will offer us healing. There's a dual challenge in there, I guess, one for us to be those people, and one to be ones who know, who are we pretending? To be if we think we are the righteous. We are the ones who need the healing as well. The last quote from Gregory of Nyssa, it's about, yeah, the doctor. I'll read this one and then we'll end. 
They who use the knife of heat to remove certain unnatural growths in the body, such as cysts and warts, do not, bring, do not bring to the person they are serving a method of healing that is painless, though they certainly apply the knife without any intention of injuring the patient. Similarly, whatever material uh, excrescences are hardening our souls, which have been made by carnal collusion with in, inordinate passions, will be in the day of judgment cut and scraped away by the ineffable wisdom and the power of him who says, as the gospel says, healed those that were sick. For as he says, they who are well have no need of the position, but they are sick. Just as the decision of the word gives a sharp pain to the skin of the body, so then there must be some anguish in the reverend coal, which has a strong bent to evil. Gregory of Nyssa, my professor of psychology, used to say, who here would cut, burn, or poison those whom they love? And everybody would go, he was a bit of a dark person. We'd say, all the time we do that. And he's like, I'm not talking about your bad nature. He said, who would do that voluntarily? And he said, and people would go, well, probably not. And he said, this is surgery, uh, chemotherapy, and um, uh, what's the poison one? radiation yes yeah the surgery that these are the ways in which we heal one another so for it is us to come to this doctor one who will do surgery on our souls and the pain that we feel is not the pain for that which is meant in harm but one meant to bring our healing it's for us to seek that in this day and as Gregory says, it's coming for us in the day to come. Let us pray. In your wisdom, God, you have instructed us through the questions of the teacher of the law. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. Through these questions, we hear that your son has authority on earth to forgive sins and to release us, to instruct us to take up our mat and go home. So too we hear that it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick and that he has come not to call the righteous, but sinners. God, call us into the places your son served, the tables at which he gathered, the houses at which he healed, so that we can see and be amazed at this kingdom as it breaks among us. We ask this all in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.